Hello everyone, it's April 5th, 2022, so the Mars Simple Return Mission is being modified and it will be pushed back a bit. That last part probably isn't too shocking. Also, those sustaining lunar development teams are coming together. We'll talk about that too and other stuff of course. Let's do it and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 353 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So yeah, so last week we had talked, or maybe the week before we had talked about the seat barter between Russia and NASA. Uh, that's still going on, so I guess it's not wrapped up yeah. yet. There was an interesting quote by Dmitry Rogozin. I think basically he's kind of still up in the air about what his decision will be regarding extending the lactam of station. So at least that's what he says. I don't know how, how much it's all bluff and bluster that. until it yeah. isn't, I think. But right now yeah. it right now it is. It's very, very angry people mm-hmm. <laughs> being angry. So I'm wondering with all these sanctions, I mean, how realistic of a problem is it that they might have problems, you know, maintaining their presence on station? Maybe it's not a big deal, but maybe it is. I actually don't have a good gauge of I, what that's like. I think it's up to Russia. I, th- I think they get to choose how hard it's going to be. And so, therefore, we don't know. Could you elaborate? Do you mean like maybe they stop invading other countries and then this all goes away? Or <laughs> That would be great. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, really, like even even as the invasion continues, NASA is still continuing to work with them. And that that's the point of ISS is that it transcends international conflict. Like it, in some ways, the ISS was responsible for the end of the Cold War. It played a, a huge part in that. Maybe, maybe my perspective is inflated because I'm a space flight nerd, but like yeah. it, it, you know, it, it played a part and the, the sanctions aren't really impacting ISS intentionally. And NASA is doing its best as far as I understand to play nice and to kind of let's pretend like you're not doing horrible things uh, over there so that we can do good things here. And it feels pretty well uh segmented what's that called compartmentalized so Mm. i I really think that nasa is doing business as usual you know what we see is is russia going ah well we're you know we're goes in (laughs) going ah Mm. we don't like this uh this is ridiculous we're gonna do x y and z and just you know throwing a little temper tantrum yes that's what i figured what you meant it's not like when sanctions harm an economy that every single facet of that economy gets hit by the same percentage amount and so yeah like uh the working on station again given the encouragement from the other half of the <laughs> actual station uh it's yeah it's kind of sequestered i think uh in a Ooh, sense where some of yeah. these some of these sanctions are meant specifically to harm different sectors of the economy and individuals uh as opposed but yeah as opposed to this so yeah hopefully hopefully nothing nothing too bad there it's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, because these sanctions are on a lot of little things in there, and it takes a lot to launch a rocket, for example. So maybe just getting to station, like, you know, there might be certain things that they need uh, that they can't source anymore. So, hmm. you know, that could be a problem. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, there's like a lot of fallout just from, it's kind of like, you know, death by a thousand cuts mm-hmm. kind of a thing. And so I don't know how many cuts it takes to, you know, render inert a space program. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the, literally the longest running space program in history. Yeah, it's it's a shame. But I mean, right, they've kind of been on the decline in a sense. Yeah. For a while now, um, still doing important things. But it, it's tough to really feel like this is the golden age or the most exciting time to be Boy, that's depressing, involved in Russian spaceflight. Yeah. And so it's, it's unfortunate, but maybe the fact that the ISS becomes one of the last few things that they really do have a 
big stake in. They will, you know, continue to participate in it. And then the real question, I guess, that I have is what happens after that? Because we had already speculated about, are they, you know, are they going to try to piggyback on the Chinese space station or revive their old plans for their own standalone station, which seems really unlikely. Mm-hmm. And so I just, it's tough. Yeah. And it's, and it's kind of a really, really a shame, I think. The Mars sample return has been uh, delayed and split, uh, or part of it has been split into two separate phases. So we're not going to be landing a rocket and a rover on one lander. Oh wow! So we gotta we gotta basically uh, hit the bullseye an extra time. Essentially, <laughs> right. part of this though makes sense because you have to follow the trail that Perseverance has left down, right? So by splitting it up, yeah, you have to hit the bullseye two times, but like you could land the fetch rover at one end of the trail land the uh mav the mars ascent vehicle on the other end of the trail and then just make one trip down instead of having to make a return trip as well oh, and that's great so to that extent that almost sounds like it is actually two bullseyes instead of one but like does, that sounds like less accuracy required to me for some reason even though it's <laughs> really easy to be accurate with the rover on, <laughs> on wheels so this has actually been in the making for some time uh for several years so i guess it's the big news is that they've just made the decision to go ahead with it um but uh this was all suggested during an independent review back in november of 2020 um when they were also i think actually they were primarily discussing at that point delaying the sample return mission but then they had also suggested hey we should probably be splitting it up too. Increasing the budget and increasing the timeline. And yeah. the the IRB actually referenced uh, a study that had looked at two different rovers like this, uh, a two rover layout. And so that option that was actually already being looked at before the IRB started. And then the IRB released its report in November 2020. So like... Yeah, it's it has been a long time. We should point out uh, this is a decision reached by both NASA and ESA to split the lander. And um, yeah, so let's talk about why that is exactly, like why they need to do that. So apparently, if you were to land this all in one go, it would require a 5.2 meter fairing or, you know, approximately thereabouts. A, a 5.2 meter heat shield and then a bigger yeah. fairing. Yeah, right. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> a 5.2 meter heat shield and then uh, an even larger fairing to accommodate that. It would actually well, need re- electric propulsion during the cruise phase. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. no. Uh, yeah, actually, I do want to uh, go after you say that. So uh, I just wanted to point out that the the electric propulsion requirement and the 5.2-ish meter heat shield uh, are coming from studies that were conducted during phase A. And so like, that's actually not like speculation from a journalist. That's actually NASA going, yeah, <laughs> this is a big deal. Um, and as a comparison, MSL used a 4.5 meter heat shield. So this is a, a big increase. I guess this would be the largest heat shield or the, the largest lander ever, right? Maybe not by mass, but, uh, or possibly by mass as well. I would you have bet a, by mass, yeah. Yeah, because you have a whole ascent stage in there or a whole ascent vehicle, like a whole other rocket you're landing, which is pretty crazy, actually. So this is now a, a bad thing. Um, even though it was something that they were looking at doing, um, I actually agree with them. I think this is probably a good step. Um, being able to take advantage of MSL's entry, descent, and landing system is a huge asset. We spent a ton of time and money developing this. We already have two data points showing that it works. 
Um, and that's something that you can rely on. If you, if you break that heritage, which is NASA's words, which I kind of like breaking EDL heritage, you wind up having to develop something bigger, which is going to cost more. It's going to take longer and it's going to wind up introducing new risks that we're, we're not familiar with. It's kind of crazy that that wasn't something that was concerning to me, but I, I guess I never really thought about the fact that they wouldn't be able to use that. I think it's worth pointing out that while we're talking about the heat shield and the cruise phase, um, that's just the ED of EDL. That's the entry and descent. The landing system, the sky crane um, that was used on MSL is ruled out just in terms of the, the mass of the payload. Um, so it really would be a, a top to bottom redesign. I guess that makes sense. It's just the idea of launching a whole other mission to Mars seems like a big deal for that to be the cheaper <laughs> and safer right. option. Uh, but but yeah, it sounds like it. So I, I guess you answered the question, but it was never explicitly stated. I was wondering, like, are these launched separately or just, you know, deployed separately? Because you could yes. put them on the same rocket, right? No, the, these are launched separately. So this is three three launches. Um, and we'll talk about the timeline later. So let's, let's leave that for a little bit. Um, but, uh, MSL is, you know, bleeding edge technology. It's, it's the state of the state of the art. It, it's huge, right? It's, it's the size of like a, a mini, but Dennis, you had a really good comparison here. Uh, MSL is four point, uses a 4.5 meter heat shield. A single MSR rover would require a 5.2 meter heat shield. And then Dennis, you had a really good comparison for that. Yeah, evidently the, uh, I was thinking of the chunkiest thing that humans, uh, will be <laughs> on in the future, uh, aside from, I guess, Starship. And the Orion heat shield is only five meters. And I say only five meters as in less than 5.2 meters, which would be needed right. for this integrated landing. Well, and 5.2 is a phase A suggestion. It could be bigger, it could be smaller, but it could be bigger. Like that's, that's kind of crazy. So I'm just thinking like Delta four heavy with Orion inside of it or Orion on top of it. I think five meters is the biggest. Yeah. Five meters, is the biggest. And that's, that's straight up from the upper stage. So like, I don't, I don't know how you're going to fly a heat shield that big they're probably they'd probably have to go to an inflatable heat shield of course you could always do my favorite hammerhead type fairings but you have to just create a whole new custom one for the vehicle which i think you i mean you can do that i didn't atlas have this ridiculous looking shaped fairing at one point but again that's that's complexity that's cost and so smart people looked into this i suppose and i remember they ran into some complications with that because it created some uh, I believe it was some aerodynamic problems when they oh, did that hammerhead fairing. Yeah. So let's talk about these uh, these two rovers. It looks like they are gonna stick with MSL heritage, right? So we're we're looking at like a sky crane. They're called SRL one and SRL two, and I don't know what SRL stands for. Is that surface rover? Probably rovers? sample, sample return. return lander. Sample return lander. Good God, I should have figured that one out. <laughs> so <laughs> SRL one. Um, will carry the MIV, the Mars Ascent Vehicle, as well as a robotic arm to to transfer the samples from the other rover. And SRL-1 is going to be developed by JPL, which like it really should be right like a a Mars ascent vehicle we've we've never done this before we've never had a payload lift off from another planet from the moon sure but not from another planet uh that that really is the 
the place where you want to spend a lot of time and money and expertise, which is JPL all over it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, SRL and, two. And just oh, sorry, just just to point out that also, I mean, the rocket itself will be built by Lockheed. Um, so then, uh, SRL two is going to have the the fetch rover on board, and this I'm really interested to hear what you what your guys' reaction to it is, but um, it's not going to be developed by JPL most likely. It's probably going to be uh, designed and built by a contractor. And like something about that strikes me as really interesting. Like this is the next best thing to the first commercial Mars Rover, right? Yeah. I suppose it could be. You guys don't sound as excited as I am. Okay. I never thought about it. Well, you said, well, you said contractor. So is that any different? I mean, what do you mean by commercial? Yeah. I'm still confused about my comment about Lockheed. So, so right. Lockheed might build the, the, the rocket itself, but JPL still manages and mm-hmm. you know approaches it. And and you're saying that for SRL two, it's not that they're just looking for another different manufacturer for the rover, but JPL would not even manage it. I mean, it depends on on what you mean by manage. But as far as the design, I think they're going to hand over a list of of requirements and say have at it. Like here's here's what. Um, here's what the sky crane can handle. Here are the interfaces that you need to have with the sky crane. Here are the interfaces that you need to have with the MAV. Uh, Mm -hmm. and you know, make sure you've got, you know, six or more wheels on it and have fun. Um, I I don't know how independent it's actually going to be. And the fact that you're coming at this from a different angle than I am makes me think that it probably won't be as independent as I assumed. Um, just, you know, wisdom of wisdom of crowds. I don't know. To, to me, it sounds like it's going to be a fairly independent, uh, design process. I mean, it could be. Um, and if so, then yeah, I would say that that's a commercial Martian lander. But, um, it's, it seemed to me that just like even the way that you were saying it at first, it just sounded like it was going to be contracted. Sure. But they would have close supervision, you know, that it wouldn't mm-hmm. be like, Hey, go do your thing and just make sure that you can, uh, you know, attach to a sky crane. <laughs> yeah. Be, be sure you're, mm-hmm. you're back in the, Meet me in the food court at lunch, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. If if you were thinking not to, I don't know, overburden JPL by having too many things happening at the same time, I don't think that really would make sense given that their expertise and history of doing these types of missions. You'd want them heading it because they're going to be responsible for mm-hmm. the other yeah. landing craft as well as the sample collections and kind of everything else that's happening yeah. as part of this program and so yeah so it'll be really interesting to see how this works out you've definitely tempered my my understanding of it which is probably a good thing uh, on average the three of us are right <laughs> but yeah, right. <laughs> you got you got to you got to take you got to take that average so uh they're going to they're going to make a call on uh manufacturer selection in June at uh, KDPB, uh, Key Decision Point B. The Phase A studies are what came up with the fairing di- or the heat shield diameter. So I guess all of this is contained in Phase A and not in pre-Phase A. Um, I think probably the you know one or two lander different uh, studies happen in pre-Phase A. Uh, they went through KDPA into Phase A. Um, which is like the beginning of the uh, technology development. So it sounds like if KDPB is coming up in June, then we're going to be moving into phase B in June, which is really cool. Um, and, and yeah, so that's that's when they'll make the, the call on the SRL2 uh, decision. So like one of the other things that uh, maybe you guys can can pitch in here and, and temper my excitement 
is I would be shocked if SRL2 is going to have dedicated science instruments, but it's still going to have cameras. It's still going to have a bunch of things that can be used for science. And we've seen this in the past. Um, do we think that SRL2 is going to be zooting around Mars doing its own science after the MAV takes off? I, I think the only reason that I can see that they wouldn't do that is if it was too expensive in terms of um, deep space operations, right? time. Yeah, and, and people operations, you're right. Um, but it still seems like if you have a rover on Mars that's not doing anything else, why the heck wouldn't you run it into the ground? I, I don't know. I, I We've never done anything like this before, so I don't know yeah. what, <laughs> what the approach would be. It's unprecedented yeah. to have something that's so tailor-made for a a practical mission like this, you know, it's right. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Got one it's job. a working yeah. class robot. It's supposed to do a task. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I, I, I would hope so, but I guess it depends on the trade-off ultimately between those costs, like you're saying, using the deep space network and uh, paying people to manage it and whether or not those cameras on board are good enough because uh, ingenuity, they, they, they're flying that into the ground, so to speak, but uh sojourner, right. That, that got, that tech demo got put to bed pretty quickly after it made it to the surface. So I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that they might just be like, okay, and it's done its job, power it down, say goodbye. I guess also we would probably need to know more about the rover. So like what is its expected lifetime on the surface? Like is this something that can be used for a long time? Or if, like you said, it's just it, – because it's just designed to do this one job, right? So after that, mm -hmm. is there much life left to it? Or is it like a solar-powered little thing? Right. Or, so yeah. that's actually – Exactly what I was going to move to next is the question of will there be one, two, or zero RTGs required for this mission? You know, you you could potentially have um, the lander use an RTG and the rover, and I guess you could even get up to three if the <laughs> if the return vehicle also had an RTG. That's a little excessive. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think I think it's likely that we'll be using one RTG for the rover or zero RTGs total, but it. it it's an interesting thought. How is this thing going to be powered? And, and where where's the RTG coming from? That was actually one of the things that the IRB uh, pointed out was like, hey, a, a major part of your study needs to include the, the RTG. Yeah, it's not non-trivial. You don't just grab one off the shelf and throw it on there. Exactly. <laughs> and And so like if we're talking about end of life, you know, it's going to be highly dependent on the RTG. But if... If that RTG is powerful enough to make it through the primary mission, it is powerful enough to continue after the primary mission. You always have a buffer there. And so if you've got an RTG-powered vehicle sitting on Mars, I think that's even more incentive to use it. I mean, it's it's an expensive power plant. You you really should do something other than just leaving it sit there. Just going through the, the NASA's document, they seem to always reference and, and recommend, and NASA agrees with the recommendation that the RTG would be, if anything, on the lander with the ascent vehicle. So oh, is that is that right? Okay, I, I did not read it closely enough, I guess. Yeah, they're thinking, you know, that just provides flexibility. You don't end up in a insight type situation where, or mm. even Jurong now is covered in, uh, in mm. dust. You know, it happens. And so I guess you, you could get away with solar panels for the lander, but it, it'd just be safer to have an RTG just because you're guaranteed if things get delayed or slowed down. And especially, actually, maybe an RTG on the lander would make more sense than ever because you're going to launch a second vehicle uh -huh. with the fetch rover. And so you really want to make sure that if something happens where if you had the opportunity to launch just the one and not the other or something happened during the SRL-1 launch, 
or sorry, the SRL2 launch, and you had to, I guess, send a backup or something. I don't know what happened. But if there was some kind of delay, uh, having knowing that when your Mars Ascent vehicle is sitting on the surface waiting to collect samples, that it has a longer lifetime than just relying on solar panels alone. Um, another interesting thing from uh, from the IRB recommendation is they pointed out that if you put an RTG on the on the lander, it can keep the MAV warm, uh, mm. which is a really fantastic uh, secondary use of that heat. It's the ascent vehicle and a robotic transfer arm. That's it. It doesn't have to go anywhere, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it requires less power, I suppose. But it just seemed mm. like it wouldn't be as necessary as on something like, you know, a rover that has to... I, I don't know, Traverse, how many kilometers, but... Um, or much less depending on exactly where they put it down. But Well, and, and the nice thing is that it doesn't have to go as far as Perseverance has. Perseverance is dumping caches in, uh, in strategic locations. By the way, uh, we should talk about Perseverance real quick. Uh, this would have been a good intro topic. Did you guys know that uh, Perseverance is about to set a land speed record on Mars? I didn't. I knew it was covering large distances in single in single movements, I guess, <laughs> but I didn't know yeah. about that. Yeah, it's it's a, a land speed uh, integrated over a month, so it's going <laughs> uh, thirty kilometers, or is it three? It's three kilometers in thirty days, so uh, a kilometer every ten days, uh, which is. Uh, very fast for Mars. And yeah, like you said, Dennis, the really cool thing about this is that it's able to, you know, go at this breakneck snail pace uh, <laughs> by, um, by doing a lot of autonomous navigation. Uh, it can drive without having to take all of the time uh, of, uh, of having people plan out each of these moves. So, so it's basically down to autonomous navigation. Is this because the terrain is a, a little bit more manageable or just because they've gotten good at it? It's because Perseverance has gotten good at it. I mean, yeah, it really is the people back home, uh, building that software, but Perseverance is better able to do hazard avoidance and, and trip like drive planning, uh, than Curiosity is. Um, and it can, you know, it can take into account you know, loose sand and things like that. It's really neat. I also just saw in the news that uh, I, I, I remember they had played audio recordings of the helicopter and the laser on the libs, like striking samples. But you could also hear audio of the rover roving around on the surface. And what's really cool, I don't know if you heard this, but in those recordings, um, one of the best things that they were able to get a recording of is the laser pulses uh, when they're when they're firing uh, the laser at a rock. And the reason is because, you know, the timing very exactly, um, you know, as the wheels are bumping over rocks or whatever, it's a little a little dubious uh, when that timing actually took place. But with the laser, they were actually able to measure the speed of sound. The speed of sound uh, is not a constant, even at a given pressure and temperature, um, the pitch of the sound also changes uh, the, the, the speed of that particular sound. And so when they did the first analysis, they actually came up with two major components for a high pitch and a low pitch component of the sound. Um, and they were kind of freaking out a little bit at first, going, oh, no, what's wrong? Why do we have two numbers here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's super interesting because that frequency dependence I heard it described as if you could communicate directly to somebody on the surface mm -hmm. through the Martian atmosphere, your voice would be jarbled and messed up because they would start hearing kind of like the lower frequencies reaching you with a delay relative to the higher frequencies in your voice. Yeah. And so yeah. you'd have this smear. I don't know. 
It might just sound like you're drunk or something. I don't know. <laughs> if anybody should, tried to simulate that. We should find a, an audio filter to to test that out or to yeah. give us a demo. But I mean, and, and that that is on top of the fact that the atmosphere is so tenuous that everything is dampened. But yeah, it, I mean, it's, you know, you stand 10 feet away from somebody and you can't understand them anymore. And that's, that's really interesting. Uh, okay. So one of the things that we put off earlier on was uh, the, the three different launches. And so I, I thought it would be good to put that off so that we could talk about the target dates, which were also pushed back. The, the lander gets split into two and then the launch date gets pushed back. So the Earth return orbiter is planned to be launched in 2027 or is targeting 2027. Uh, each of the landers will be launched separately, uh, in 2028. And then the, uh, the return orbiter, uh, will complete the mission in 2033. That's quite a long time in the future. Part of this delay uh, is due to the uh, the IRB saying, hey, you need more time and you need more money, which I don't think anybody's going to argue with. Um, but another part of it is uh, due to ExoMars. Uh, if you remember, uh, Roscosmos pulled out of the ExoMars project, um, which delayed ExoMars, but also it caused NASA to step in and, and renew their participation. Um, in the project. And so it's not only the delay of ExoMars, but also the fact that NASA is now doing more work that's going to delay <laughs> uh, all of NASA's other projects related to Mars. So, um, so yeah, that, that winds up, uh, uh, delaying, uh, MSR, which is a, a bummer, but it's always good to have more cooperation. And I'm glad that, that NASA is doing more on ExoMars now. Uh, I don't know how much they were, they were actually participating, but I believe it was non-zero, uh, but still fairly trivial. But yeah, there you go. Three, three, uh, three launches for sure. 2027, 2028, 2033 are the big dates to keep in mind. So let's do a translation. We haven't done that in a while. Two news topics. So <laughs> sustaining lunar development. Next up, Appendix P. Well, first, uh, Delta V has some breaking news for us. Um, the wet dress rehearsal of SLS has been scrubbed. Oh, okay. uh, they experienced a loss of ability to pressurize the mobile launcher, uh, which, you know, not great, but at least it's not something to do with the rocket. So that was supposed to happen today, uh, but it looks like it's going to happen tomorrow. So Monday, when you're listening to this in the, in the past, uh, which is, uh, which is good. Uh, so moving on to a little bit farther down the Artemis, uh, Railroad. Uh, so first, some terms. Uh, SLD is Sustaining Lunar Development. Uh, it's also known as Next Step Appendix P. Um, HLS, the Human Landing System, uh, was Appendix N. So you see HLS referred to as Appendix N a lot. Get ready. Uh, Appendix P is now going to be another uh, buzz term, I guess. So right now, we're mostly talking about Northrop Grumman. Um, there's a Space News article that is our primary reference here or, or our initial reference. Uh, and then we have some additional stuff in there you can look at. But uh, but Space News mentioned Lockheed Martin, but I, I reread the sentence a couple of times. I'm a little fuzzy today. Didn't get enough sleep. And it wasn't entirely clear to me why they mentioned Northrop Grumman or why they mentioned Lockheed Martin, because they were talking about Lockheed Martin's statements uh, way back um, when HLS was awarded or was, was being, uh, computed. So anyway, uh, 
Northrop Grumman was originally part of the national team, obviously, uh, the Blue Origin team. Um, and for the national team, they were going to be developing the transfer element, the uh, the engine that gets you from gateway to low lunar orbit. And we don't know what they're going to do. Uh, Rick Mastracchio uh, said that they're now finalizing their plans as to uh, Appendix P, uh, as to uh, SLD. But they might be splitting off and doing their own thing rather than rejoining uh, the national team. And we say rejoining uh, with uncertain, with, with a certain amount of uncertainty, but not a whole lot. I think it's pretty clear that uh, Blue Origin is going to be uh, reentering with a, an updated version uh, of their lander. Um, but they they might have to find somebody else to get them to low to low orbit. I am really interested to see what. Uh, a Northrop Grumman lander would look like. And, you know, I, I kind of want them to split off. I think the more, the more competitors, the better, but we, we will know hopefully in the next few weeks, or at least they'll be making the decision in the next few weeks. Hopefully they will be telling us uh, soon. No, I'm with you a hundred percent. I'd love to see as many hats thrown in this ring as possible. I, I wish that Northrop Grumman was distinct enough that I could start imagining what their lander system is going to look like like not just visually but like what is going to make it distinct from other landers how cool would it be if they uh went and joined up with um uh dynetics and we got uh we got alpaca back um so also in northrop grumman news um they're worried about antares cygnus uh, as you might imagine antares uh, the first stage uses an rd181 and its first stage, so so Antares's first stage uh, uses an RD-181, which of course is manufactured in Russia. And then to make it worse, the first stage of Antares, I didn't realize this, but the first stage of Antares is actually produced in Ukraine. Uh, so Antares's first stage is a wash. We, <laughs> we don't make any more of those. Luckily, um, they have enough... Uh, Antares hardware for at least the next two Cygnus missions. It's not clear uh, what they have beyond the next two missions, um, but but ho hopefully they have more. It, it doesn't sound like NASA's worried about it because um, they actually awarded uh, six additional uh, missions under the CRS-2 contract, the commercial resupply uh, contract last month, uh, so after the, the start of the war. Uh, I believe it, it might actually be pretty close. I didn't, I just saw the month. I don't know if I actually looked at the date, but I mean, we're, we're what, seven weeks in? I think, I think the invasion started at the beginning of last month. So anyway, but uh, I, I think it's pretty clear that Cygnus will fly a, another, what, eight times, right? The two that they have left on the initial CRS-2 uh, award and then uh, six more with the additional award. So Cygnus is okay, but who knows what it's going to be flying on. And of course, Cygnus can fly in other vehicles, but I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that it'll fly in on Antares. I, I think it's fairly reasonable that Antares may be updated. Of course, Antares has already been updated. The RD-181 is a replacement for the AJ-26, uh, which... Uh, was what blew up during the Orbital 3 failure uh, in 2014. They switched over to the 181. Maybe they're going to be able to switch to a new engine. Maybe they'll be able to find a new manufacturer for the for the fuel tanks and the, you know the the fuselage. Who who knows? Maybe uh, maybe Antares will just be the the rocket 
that doesn't quit. I'm wondering if it does find something else, what that something else would be. Well, didn't it didn't it uh, fly on a Atlas, Atlas four? Right. Yeah, it flew on an Atlas five twice. Oh, three times actually. So it after after Orb three, the SS Deke Slayton kicked it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it flew um, on an Atlas five, and then an Atlas five again for um, OA six, and then it flew on an Antares for OA five. And then on an Antares for OA7, uh, Antares 6 actually flew before, or uh, OA6 flew before OA5. So maybe uh, Vulcan Centaur then. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that would, I think that would be it. And uh, Vulcan is probably going to be up and running in time. NG18 and NG19 are the next two missions. NG18 is planned for August of this year. And then NG19 is planned for April of 2023. And so, yeah, NG20 is going to be happening after after the maiden flight, unless something goes dramatically wrong. So let's hope uh, Blue or- Blue Origin can have another 12 months to get their yeah. rockets to ULA. I, I think they're going to be just fine. Uh, like, I, I think it's going to work out. Uh, Delta V in the chat says uh, Northrop Grumman is pointedly not talking about it right now, <laughs> which I like. Mm. Um, and, and, uh, there's a tweet from Jeff Faust that says, uh, they're looking at options to continue Cygnus missions after NG-19, but they haven't made any decisions left. Uh, they're considering both returning to the national team or going it alone. These are both from a a media briefing and, and Northrop Grumman right now is like, we're not talking about anything. (laughs) Mm. Oh, and Delta B points out that SpaceX could even be an option, which is really uh, an interesting thought yeah. um have uh, falcon 9s flying everybody to iss or or everybody's lunch to iss all right this week let's just do two short and sweets why not and ben what's the first one okay crew dragon production is coming to an end spacex president gwen shotwell has confirmed that production of new crew dragon spacecraft has already ended spacex plans to maintain its current fleet of four crew dragons including the recently completed and final capsule named freedom however according to reuters only the crew variant of the dragon 2 capsule will no longer be produced the cargo version may still remain in active production the decision to end crew dragon is largely a result of spacex's pivot to starship as its future transport for crew to iss and beyond any future use of Crew Dragon will rely on refurbished capsules, with further production being considered only in the event of a loss of a vehicle. Next up, Slingshot gets a contract. Slingshot Aerospace won a $25.2 million Space Force contract to develop a virtual replica of the space environment, known as a Digital Twin, a product that has been in development for over two years. This Digital Twin would be a high-fidelity, physics-driven simulation that would allow users to simulate various scenarios. Slingshot Aerospace will develop two versions of its Digital Twin simulator, one for Space Force and the other for public use. Additionally, it will be releasing Slingshot Laboratory, a space training product for use in classrooms. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. Uh, and this week we have a correction or a explanation about nautical miles that I was talking about last week and why they seem so random, but they're not as random as we think. So there's a reason why a nautical mile is the length that it is. And uh, we got the answer from uh, from Andrew Z, as per usual. Yes. Yeah, so so if if yeah if if a minute 
or an arc minute is one sixtieth of a degree. So if you're traveling north south along, you know, in a purely latitudinal way, every degree that you travel that surface of the Earth, that physical distance is one nautical mile. So if you travel north, due north one degree on the ocean, say, you've moved one nautical mile. And I don't know why I didn't know that. And I guess you two didn't know it either. Or maybe you did, Dennis. I don't know. But I only never... typed it in the chat, and Andrew provided a lot of awesome context about uh, these rules with knots in particular that I thought was great. So this was very helpful for him. But he knows more about it than I do. <laughs> I, I never put together why a nautical mile was still being used, right? So landlubber mile is 5280 feet, 5,280 feet. A nautical mile is 6,000 feet or 2,000 yards. And like, first off, round numbers are lovely, okay? Uh, 6,000 isn't the best round number. Like I'd much rather go with 1,000, like a kilometer, but hey, I'll take it. But the fact that it's one arc minute around the earth approximately because you know uh the earth is not exactly what six thousand feet times 360 times 60 whatever that is it's there, there are some estimates going on here but it's still really handy to be able to place yourself like if you go 60 knots or if you go 60 nautical miles then you've gone one degree around the earth like that's really cool so then knots uh nautical miles per hour right so then Andy gave us two interesting rules called the three minute rule and the six minute rule. And I'm sure that there are sailors right now who are like, how do you not know this? <laughs> but if you take your speed in knots and multiply it by a hundred, that gives you the distance in yards that you that you will travel in three minutes. So like the equivalent would be in miles per hour, you know, a mile a minute is 60 miles an hour, right? So here we have you take your speed, you multiply it by 100. That's how many yards you've traveled in three minutes. So that that's how to calculate the distance you'll travel in yards over three minutes. And then you can, you know, guesstimate from there. Just because it's an even number of yards in a nautical mile, if you take your speed in knots and divide it by 10, that gives you the distance in nautical miles that you will have traveled in six minutes. So I, I'm probably not going to remember those things because that's not nearly as interesting to me as the the minute distance i think that's so cool i think the reason why i thought it wasn't anything particularly useful i suppose was because it's called a nautical mile and i think of miles as being kind of arbitrary i didn't know that right. a nautical mile was tagged to <laughs> right. or, you know set to something important no it's like no no no, no. Like I, better I mile yeah yeah <laughs> yeah exactly david you, you hit the nail on the head i went okay a mile is already this arbitrary weird number a nautical mile is more esoteric than a normal mile. So it has to be more arbitrary as well. Yeah. And it turns out, yeah, it's mm -hmm. the better mile. Um, you know, if we're, if we're not going to switch over to the metric system here in the U S I think we should at least throw out the weird mile and go with the, the real mile. Yeah. That's not a bad idea. That would actually be more useful than metric at least for, you know, like distances that you travel. That would be really yeah. cool. And, uh, Chris, our, our resident pilot, uh, says that, yeah, knots are used all the time in aviation. And now I understand why it's important in aviation. It's important in launching rockets because it 
it actually means something. Uh, it's very cool. So moving on to this week in spaceflight history, we have like five winners. Uh, I say like because I don't know, but we got uh, Desky Miller, Kevin Smith, Chris, a.k.a. Stigarfield, and Peter McMalley. So we have all those people winning, and I guess they all get bonus points too, right? All get bonus points. They all got the actual essence of the clue, and the clue was Pinky in the brain that he's trying to fix, and yeah, that one stumped me. Um, so who is Pinky? Well, I know who Pinky and the Brain are, but who are these two? Yeah, I was <laughs> I gonna assume... say, in this case, only one of them is a living creature in this yeah. case, between Pinky and the Brain, and, uh, if you knew the astronaut Pinky Nelson, then this clue probably, uh, was a lot more easier to figure out. Mm-hmm. So the event was the 4th of April, 1984, and it was a Challenger flight, uh, the launch of STS-41C. And so this was the, uh, the 11th shuttle mission, but the first one using this different nomenclature, uh, STS-41B, which is a refresher if you're interested, right? Uh, the four stands for, well, the four is the four in 1984. The one, uh, means that it's flew from the Cape. A two would mean that it flies from Bandy. And then the B means that it's the second mission on the docket in that fiscal year. And not, not necessarily the launch order. <laughs> Because sometimes they right. would get swapped, but it, it's more or less, yeah. Yeah, you still had that because, like, the idea it was nominally so you didn't have the issue with uh, missions flying out of order. But at the end of the day, mm. they still were flying out of order. So I just, they, they, I, I would have preferred a uh, a goes type system, where maybe prior to the flight you give mm. it a different designation, STS AAA or something, and then AAB and AAC and so on. I don't know. And then once you actually fly, then you give it the number. In any event, there was a bunch of firsts on this one, uh, not related to Pinky and the Brain. Uh, it was the first direct ascent that the shuttle took. And so because of the different trajectory, there was no Ohm's one burn that they had to do on all the previous flights. And so uh, to give you a comparison, uh, the Ohm's one burn, so, so usually the shuttle would launch prior to this mission. And after it would get on orbit, it would fire an Ohm's one burn to raise its apogee to the target. And then it would head up to Apogee and fire the Ohm's 2 burn to circularize it at wherever it wanted, to, wherever it wanted to be. I assume circularize it. The, the previous mission, it's Ohm's 1 burn. I, I thought this was cool because I never really looked too carefully in, into these times when they happened, but that Ohm's 1 firing was at 10 minutes and 41.6 seconds mission elapsed time and was 150 seconds while the Ohm's burn was at, uh, 42-ish missions, uh, mission elapsed time and required a 124.8 seconds. So almost two minutes for an Ohm's 2 burn. But for this one, there was no Ohm's 1 burn. And so like Colin was pointing out in the chat, uh, there was a Ohm's 1 not required call out. And so the Ohm's 2 burn was at 42 minutes, 54 seconds MET and lasted only 95.1 seconds. So you saved about 30 seconds of having to fire your Ohm's engines. So pretty cool. Uh, this mission also was the first and only deployment of the Long Duration Exposure Facility or LDEF, uh, which you may have heard on this show, at least in episode 192, when Ben, you could correct me if I'm wrong, I believe you did a wonderful uh, twisif about the recovery of LDEF, but this is the mission that it was deployed on. Sounds about right. And also on that episode 192, we did a data relay on Sea Dragon presented by uh, Valentin Frank. And so that was a really fun one, I remember. So check that out if you want to hear a deep dive into the absolute monstrosity <laughs> in terms of just size and power that Sea Dragon would have been. Uh, in any event, uh, so the first direct descent, the deployment of LDEF, as well as the uh, more pertinent to this clue, the first rendezvous and repair flight, 
the rendezvous and repair for the shuttle was uh, targeting the Solar Maximum mission. And so Solar Max, for short, was launched about four years earlier on a Delta 3910. But after about eight months, uh, there were some thermal issues that meant fuses kept popping on the electronics, and ultimately the uh, attitude control system had failed on the spacecraft, uh, as well as five of the seven instruments. Only two of them were still usable. And all that was left were these magnetotorkers, and so they p placed the spacecraft into a sun-pointed spin um, that, I guess, left it kind of thermally more stable, as well as were able to draw power uh, with the solar sails, or, or the solar panels. And as a result of that, it kind of was limping along in terms of science. And so four years of unfortunate decreased capacity. And so here's where the clue comes in, Pinky in the brain, that he's trying to fix. Pinky is astronaut Pinky Nelson, one of the five astronauts on this mission. And the brain is the, you know, the electronics and the, you know, the brain of the spacecraft. So Solar Max is the brain in a sense. And so uh, I could also give a quick rundown of the astronauts. Uh, this was... Uh, Commanded by uh, Bob Crippen, uh, and was the it was him and four rookies. So you had uh, Dick Scobie uh, was the pilot of the mission, and then the three mission specialists were Terry Hart. Uh, this was the only time he flew, and then the two EVA mission specialists, which were Ox Van Hopten and Pinky Nelson. Out of all of them, uh, four of them were military trained pilots. And Pinky was the astronomer. And for whatever reason, they decided to give him access to the uh, MMU suit, the manned mobility unit. And so he was going to be on one of the only six uh, flights of the MMU. And I think one of only four people to have used it. Uh, Bruce McCandless used it on the previous mission. And so he was going to be uh, flying it this time. So really cool. And uh, yay that an astronomer got to do it. Yeah, what an elite club, huh? Yeah, yeah. According according to his oral history, he didn't really know why he was selected for it, uh, since Ox Van Hoften, like I said, was was the other astronaut using the MMU, and he did get to play around with it as well. But um, but yeah, Pinky was not going to ask questions. Right. When somebody hands you a jetpack, you shut the fuck up. <laughs> exactly. You smile and you say thank you. Which which end, which end points forward? Okay, great. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I could work with this. Yeah. So the mission was going to consist of two EVAs. And so the first EVA, which was only, this is, this is 1984. So this is only the fourth space shuttle EVA and the third with the free flyer, uh, the third free flyer EVA using the MMU. And the hope was that this, uh, T pad, which NASA had hopes for of being a way to repair the shuttle. Cause after all, right, the shuttle's a space truck. We're going to be sending it up there all the time. It's going to be having astronauts flying over in the MMU and attaching themselves to spacecraft and messing with it all the time. So they wanted to test this T-pad, which stands for the uh, uh, Trunnion Pin Attachment Device. And so they were starting to put these pins that were compatible with this device on spacecraft in anticipation of, you know, repair and work on them in the future. And so the T-pad was, was tested by Bruce McCandless on... STS-41B, the previous flight uh, just before this one. It was at one point considered for Hubble. And it's pretty cool. It's basically uh, this uh, looks like a pair of tubes that are sticking out uh, uh, one away from the uh, you hold it in front of the, the spacewalker's tummy and you've got the primary T-pad pointed away and that's what you would connect to your whatever 
satellite or thing that you want to work on and operate at the time. And then there was also a secondary T-pad pointing down towards the astronaut's feet. Uh, and that was apparently used to lock the astronaut in place sometimes. They might want to just be stabilized uh, using that T-pad. And so you had actually two T-pads, a uh, primary and a secondary on the given, you know, when you just say the T-pad, you're talking about the whole unit on your belly. So Bruce McCandless, even though he was getting the most iconic picture potentially out of the the shuttle era, potentially, or even all of space flight. I mean, that one right where he's just flying out by himself with the MMU is so iconic. But they were doing some real work on there, too, including testing it on a trunnion pin sticking out of a SPAS-11 platform in the cargo bay. And so the hope for this first EVA would be that Crip, who was selected for this mission, he believes, because he was had already done a rendezvous mission uh, on a previous shuttle flight, they would get within, uh, get to about 200 feet of uh, the solar max, and then uh, basically ground would disarm uh, the pyros and shut down any remaining attitude control on the spacecraft, and so it would just be passive and sitting there. And then Pinky would go flying over to it in one of the two MMUs on board and essentially grab this, uh, it's an 8-millimeter trunnion pin that's at the joint uh, where there's a transition ring between the spacecraft bus and the telescope for Solar Max. So to just give you an idea of what Solar Max looks like, it's essentially, it's a longer kind of cylindrical satellite, and it's got a spacecraft uh, bus, you know, with all the, you know, stuff for making it actually get up there and safe in time and have the ACS and all that good stuff in there. And then on top of it, roughly in the same dimensions as the spacecraft bus, but just stretched out a little longer, is where the uh, telescopes and other instruments are, mostly. In, in principle, uh, the MMU would be able to null itself out inertially relative to the stars. And so if Pinky could go and use the T-pad to grab this little pinion, this pin that they'd stuck on the spacecraft, purposefully knowing that in the future they might need to service it or mess with it. And so Pinky goes and would grab onto it, and then, you know, he would be rotating with the spacecraft, which at this point was spinning around its long axis, and then use the MMU to just zero himself out, and by extension, zero out the spacecraft, and all would be well. You'd have a totally fixed-in-space spacecraft, and then the shuttle arm, Terry Hart would grab it with the arm because it had different from that pin. It had a, you know, a grapple fixture for the, the arm and then bring it into the payload bay, put it on the special uh, cradle that they had set up for it. And then uh, Ox and Pinky would be able to fix it uh, during the rest of that EVA and then on a second EVA. In particular, the ACS module would be replaced as well as the main electronics box for a number of the uh, instruments. Uh, that's part of why uh, five of those seven instruments on board were no longer usable. So that was the hope. The reality was, Pinky goes, and they got within uh, 200 feet, and so he goes zooting over, and keep in mind, you know, you're still over 100 feet away, so he really is, in a Bruce McCandless-style way, out in the darkness of space, approaching the spacecraft. It's really surreal, the images that they took from the orbiter of him out there. Um, really, really cool. And uh, a shout-out to one of the uh, winners this week, Kevin Smith, who pointed out in the post-flight debriefing that the uh, astronauts uh, would always give after these shuttle missions, Pinky used the term potato burn to talk about how much he had to fire the MMU's thrusters. So the quote is, uh, you can see we were a little closer than the 200 feet that we planned, so I only did a two potato burn instead of a two and a half potato burn. So it went a little slower. 
which oh, I love astronauts. <laughs> I love that so much. And I, I, as you can imagine, a potato burn is a difficult thing to Google for. And so I am assuming that the weight of a potato might roughly be about three newtons on the surface of the earth. And so he was referring to a three newton burn instead of a. Do you, you don't you know, think he was talking about one potato, two potato, three to count seconds out? He could be. I had no idea. <laughs> like, do you guys have ideas? That makes sense too. See, I say Mississippi, so I, I yeah, I wouldn't have I thought like that. Huh. I think, I think maybe Ben might be right because that seems much more likely, unless he was really thinking about the weight of a I, potato yeah, at the time. I really okay. like the weight of a potato being a uh, a <laughs> unit for small <laughs> delta v's. See, that's that's the thing. I, I, I'm just, I was totally trying to grasp at what a potato burn. I mean, it sounds fun. But I, I didn't know what he was referencing. But that okay, that makes sense then. And uh, if anybody knows for sure, uh, including Kevin, if you want to uh, write in again, <laughs> just uh, let us know. Because I, I, like I said, that that was something I had not heard before, and um, it's something that's difficult to ch- uh, to Google. <laughs> potato burn, NASA, and then try to get something from that. I tried googling, like you said, like NASA potato burn, but all I get is references <laughs> to The Martian. So, oh yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> So after that, you know, two potato burn got him out there. Things that was the last time things went right. So he got he's got the T pass around his tummy. He approaches the spacecraft. Everything seems to be going fine, and he's locked in on the pin. And he pushes forward and bounces off. And he thought he went in close enough that the uh, little spring mechanism on the T pad should have been enough to catch the pin, but he didn't. And so he goes in a little harder and faster the second time. Bounces off again. Tries it a third time, and it's very clearly he's going in as far as he can with this 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 device strapped on his tummy, essentially, and was unable to get it to lock. And they were not prepared for this at all. Apparently, not even like uh, as one of the astronauts described it, not even over a cup of coffee did they really talk about well, what if <laughs> what if they can't connect to the spacecraft at all with the T pad? They were in full on contingency mode. So the one idea was, well, and this is, man, this is those early 80, I mean, those early shuttle missions, right? Uh, maybe just grab one of the solar panels and then you can zero it out that way. Now, that seems kind of wild to do, but he goes and does it. He, he translates over to one of the panels. He's still got enough fuel. He grabs it with his, his mitts and tries to zero it out there. And it appeared to work initially, but ultimately the tumbling came back once he backed off. And 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 that kind of makes sense, at least with this pin that I was talking about that he's trying to get at with the T-pad. That's along the main axis of the spacecraft that's right spinning around that long axis initially. So you can imagine he's not applying many torques to it, but the torques got worse uh, when he you know was still trying that, bouncing off those three times. And then they got significantly worse after applying an off-axis torque onto a, a solar panel. Because remember, right, this is space, so you don't need much force to be able to move even massive objects. And this was, I think, 5,000-pound spacecraft. And so it had a lot of inertia, but, you know, again, you're in space. You can literally use the differential gravitational field over, like, 20 feet to be able to <laughs> affect your spacecraft. So now you've got this spacecraft uh, having the MMU with, you know, Pinky and the MMU grab the brain and bring it back to the payload bay is out of the question. So let's have Terry on the RMS try to grab it. Uh, he has a few attempts. He, he's unsuccessful each time. He, one time apparently came so close he was within inches, but there's also a bit of a question of if he did actually grab it, would it have had enough uh, momentum 
in its spinning to actually damage the RMS. It very well might have, and so that might have actually been a good thing that he wasn't able to grab it. And so there was a backup T-pad on board, but Crip was like, I don't see any reason why that would be useful. Um, something's wrong here. Now the Solar Max might not be charging its batteries anymore, that it's tumbling out of control around other axes. So this stinks. What are we going to do? Okay. Well, so it turns out ground control evidently had something uh, in their back pocket, <laughs> I suppose, that the astronauts were unfamiliar with. And that was to use those magnetotorkers on board which were working, to try and remove the tumbling. And the astronauts were like, oh, well, that sounds wonderful. Let's do that. And so they did, and it worked. <laughs> they were basically able to go and uh, remove that tumbling so that the arm could grab it. So TJ was able to grab it. That's Terry Hart's nickname, TJ. Uh, was able to grab it, no problem, and bring it into the uh, the cradle, which is the FSS, which is either the flight support system or flight support structure, depending on what source you're listening to or reading. And um, basically, once it the Solar Max was plopped into this cradle, they're able to rotate it around so the astronauts can access the parts that they need to open to replace the, the ACS and the uh, electronics bus. And so they do that. And that is actually Oxen's pinky get back out into the bay. Uh, Ox, I believe, was uh, initially hanging around on the arm, getting dragged uh, or getting pulled around. And that went smoothly. It was pretty simple. Um, they had to do some fine tuning and some fine work. And even though I say it was simple, I mean, I guess that means that it went smoothly. Apparently, their fingers were bloodied afterwards um, because of the kind of delicate work they're doing. And also just, you know, that's, these gloves are not easy. And so this was the uh, the Ace Satellite Repair Company striking again, which is the, the nickname over a bunch of shuttle missions that the astronauts would use whenever they had to go and grab something or fix something on orbit. They would call themselves the, uh, the Ace Satellite Repair Company. And so that worked out great. You know, they were then able to deploy SolarMax again. Uh, then... Ox got to fly around with the MMU uh, in terms of uh, uh, doing what they call an engineering flight test. But yeah, basically, you know, better characterize the center of mass. So really just have, you know, him doing very simple maneuvers in the bay to better get an idea of it. Because if this was going to become the workhorse that it turned out to never become, it might as well get more engineering data while you're there. And so that was great. They, it turned out going from a very difficult contingency to successfully uh, rescuing this mission. And so the brain was saved and fixed. Really awesome. And kind of shows that how these shuttle missions were, where you also had on board thousands of honeybees. Um, the IMAX footage for uh, the movie The Dream is Alive, uh, if you've ever seen that or want to check that out. Um, and all sorts of other things on board that I couldn't cover in a single twist because <laughs> of just how much was going on. I mean, I glossed over the deployment of... Uh, LDEF. So, <laughs> you know, that's something that could merit its own uh, uh, twist, if, but uh, I, guess, I guess since Ben really covered that a lot uh, when it was recovered, I think that was okay for me to jettison that, so to speak. And uh, as for the Solar Max mission, it operated until 1989, so another half a decade out of it. Um, and, and I actually didn't really say what this was for. Maybe you could guess Solar Max mission. It was basically launched to study the sun during one of its, you know, Solar Maxima, these 11 year cycles that it undergoes and so but it, it, it you know it, it was it was a successful mission ultimately and some of the blankets the thermal blankets that were returned uh, by this shuttle mission provided good data on meteoroid and debris impacts uh, since that thing had been up there for four years just getting hit by whatever's at you know 500 ish kilometers uh, in orbit one thing i glossed over so this far as 
well, what happened? <laughs> Why didn't the T-pad work? Why was Pinky bouncing off of it when he was trying to grapple onto the trunnion pin? And it turns out that on top of that trunnion pin was a quarter-inch grommet, right? Like a ring. Uh, and that ring was there, it was fiberglass, and was meant to hold uh, the thermal blankets on the satellite. And it turns out, for some reason, that was not present on drawings of the spacecraft design on the ground. So because of that quarter inch missing from the blueprints on the ground, and those blueprints were what they were designing the T-pad grappler based on, they had a quarter inch of tolerance that they couldn't, you know, the, 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 the spring-loaded jaws on the T-pad couldn't get in far enough to be able to clamp down on the on the pin. And so uh, I have to imagine that in terms of uh, project management and things like that, there's been some case studies written about this um, because that was really unfortunate. But mercifully, all it took was, uh, you know, just changing the plan around. They were able to save the mission. But that would have been really awful if uh, you weren't if they weren't able to rescue this mission. And, you know, a big part of why they went on orbit, they weren't able to accomplish because of this uh, mismatch between uh, what was on the ground and what actually flew. Or what was, you know, what was written in the blueprints on the ground and what actually flew. So, go figure. But in any event, uh, they, they landed safely. Like I said, SolarMax operated for another half a decade and all is well. And that's crazy that it all came down to just that little grommet and yeah. that can throw things off. Isn't that how it is in space? And it's not like, and it like and if it was in the blueprints, they would have been able to just change the design of the T-pad. <laughs> and that wouldn't have been a problem, yeah. but... Yeah. That was an interesting mission. We had the MMU. We had uh, tumbling satellites and potatoes. So, and this and this is a mission that again we we talk about it a lot with spatial missions. It, it, there's yeah. been so many, and you think you've heard it all, but uh, this particular one, I, I didn't know a lot of these details. Yeah, that was fun. And uh, Ben, do you have one next week for us? Yeah, I do. I really wish that I wish that I could come up with a clue that involved the word potato, but I can't. All right. <laughs> so next week in 1985, the clue is swat that fly. Are potato flies a thing? That's a word, right? You could throw <laughs> that in there. I don't fly. think it's potato necessary. Fly. There's a potato weevil. There's a potato bug, right? Yeah. Okay. There we go. Yeah. Uh, 1985, uh, swat that Colorado potato beetle. I'm assuming that the exact species of the insect is not important. Uh, but yeah, that's next week in 1985. And if you think you know what the answer or what the event that corresponds to that clue is, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. This week we have just uh, two upcoming spaceflight events. So let's get to those. What's the first one, Ben? All right. First up, we maybe have a long March 4B. We got a really wide launch window. Uh, so, uh, you know, kind of one of those instances where we're not a hundred percent sure if it's actually going to fly. Um, but you know, we know that there are no TAMs out. It's, it's not clear. It's, it seems likely to be a long March 4B, but we're not sure about that. It seems likely to be SJ six, uh, group six, uh, being the payload, but that's also not clear. Cause again, all we know is that there's a no TAM out. Um, so this window is running from April 6th, uh, just before midnight, 2336 hours UTC to, uh, the seventh at 0400 hours UTC. Um, so that, that might be a long March 4B, uh, but it's probably, uh, I think with the NOTAM, uh, we know that it's flying out of Jiuquan and launch library is taking a guess at launch area four, uh, SLS two, 
uh, 603 are all AKAs. But yeah, I don't I don't know if that's certain from the NOTAM. Then after that, on the 8th, uh, we have uh, the Axiom Rendezvous in docking and the hatch opening. You can watch it on NASA TV. The coverage begins at 1 in the morning Eastern time, so kind of early. Uh, the docking itself is scheduled at 2.45, so you can maybe watch that. So this is for 10 days in space, and they're spending apparently a little over a week, eight out of those 10 days docked to the station, which is kind of surprising. I didn't realize it was going to be that long. So it's eight really days cool. docked to the station, mm-hmm. and then I guess the other two are just coming and going. This will be crewed by uh, Michael Lopez-Alegria, Larry Connor, Mark Pathy, and Aton Stiba. So, yep, good luck to them. Have fun doing what we all dream of. Well, so uh, Lopez Alegria is the astronaut chaperone. The The next Axiom mission um, is going to be commanded by Peggy Whitson. So, like, remember mm. when we talked about all these astronauts signing up with Axiom? Now we're starting to see them flying. It's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. All right, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right, and with that, let's uh, do over the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jinkies and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout-out to Chris Stye, Colin, Chavi, Mike, the Greek Chris, and Delta V for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. Alright, that's it. We'll see you next week on Orbit. Until Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.